time, I'd like to invite uh, any children ages kindergarten through uh, second grade to exit uh, by the piano to hear what the Lord has in store for you. Now I know what you're thinking. I thought the same thing when I came in today. Finally, finally, a backdrop that is consistent with the outdoor rugged charisma I bring to the pulpit. So for all the hard work, I appreciate it. It is quite amazing, quite amazing. If you're visiting with us, um, our pastor Jeremy is on sabbatical. Uh, So in the meantime, we've been working through as a church uh, through Philippians. Uh, It's been a nine-part study, and we're about halfway through. We're at week five. Uh, And I'm very, very glad uh, that you're here. We've been looking at, primarily, what Paul has to say to the church in Philippi regarding conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In fact, that has kind of underscored all that we have talked about. And and if I could have you leave this entire series with one thought, that would be it. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we have investigated how Paul has been bringing that to the forefront in Scripture. We've looked at how to conduct yourself in such a manner, how that is a steadfastness in the face of opposition. We've looked at how that is a unity in the Holy Spirit, that how that as a church we respond with a primary purpose of spreading the gospel, of advancing the gospel. We've looked at how such a church that conducts itself in such a manner responds in humility, serving each other, thinking of others before ourselves. And of course, when we were together last, we looked at how our Lord, Christ, how he is the ultimate example of humility, of obedience, obedience onto the cross. Now, I bring you all up to speed on that for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's been a while since we've been together, and so it's sort of important to kind of refresh where we're at in this study. But two, because what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at a traditionally difficult passage. We're going to look at a verse and a phrase where Paul says that we are to work out our salvation. To work out our salvation. Now, this phrase has caused a lot of discussion in evangelical Protestant circles. And I think part of the reason for some misinterpretation is not appreciating the context that this phrase comes in. And and so I wanted to make sure we are reminded of the context of what we're talking about. We're talking about conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 5. Chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 5. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1162. Now, as it's been a while since we were together, some of you may have forgotten an easy way to find Philippians in relation to 
Ephesians and Colossians. George eats pork chops. So, you know, if you're visiting at the church, actually, I want you to leave with two things. I want you to leave with conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and then George eats pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Some people have asked me if I have any other clever ways of knowing where a book is, and I do. Take 2 Corinthians, right after 1 Corinthians. It's that kind of full service that we provide here. 2 John, 1 John, 3 John, you're there. So any, anything I can do to help you work through Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now we come to today's passage. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, it's easy with the splendor of verses 5 through 11 of, of talking about Christ's humility and Christ's obedience, it's easy to maybe forget why that passage is there to begin with. But Paul, Paul brings his readers immediately back to the point with verse 12. The reason verses 5 through 11 are there to begin with, the reason Paul goes to great lengths to talk about Christ's humility and his obedience is as a reminder, as an example of what he has been talking about since verse 27, of how we as citizens of heaven conduct ourselves. And he brings us right back to the point, right back to the point with that therefore, with verse 12, that therefore, he reminds us that we are in a discussion. We have been discussing suffering as a response to the gospel. We have been discussing humility as a response to the gospel. And now we're going to be discussing obedience as a response to the gospel. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. That's a little aside Paul gives there, but I love that aside. My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. I think we have a glimpse there. I think we have a wonderful glimpse of the heart of Paul. Paul's not some figure on a mountaintop issuing edicts and mandates. He is a caring, encouraging man. And having just talked about sort of the lack of unity and the struggles of humility in the Philippian church and having just presented the awesome example of Christ, it's very well possible, and probably is true, that the Philippian church felt quite convicted at that. 
And so Paul here is quick to remind them that they are his dear friends. And is quick to remind them that he knows they are a church that gets it. That they are a church that has been obeying. And I think this little aside also tells us that an obeying church should continue to grow in its obedience. We as a church should never be content with where we are. We should be desiring to know and follow Christ more. I mean, we tend to think of commands for obedience and and texts dealing with obedience. We tend to think of that in terms of people who are disobeying. What is Paul doing here? Paul is saying to a church that he knows has been obedient. He is going to call them to continue and to grow in their obedience. We should take that to heart. We should never be content with where we are. But that is just an aside. That is not the main point of the passage. The main point is that very difficult clause. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, and here we come to it, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is the central mandate of this passage. That is the key point. In fact, we may even be best served to eliminate that little side clause to feel the strength of it. It really, the, the, the flow of the logic is, therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this has caused evangelical Protestants a lot of grief. Many have had a lot of difficulty with this verse. In fact, if you get books of difficult passages in the Bible, a lot of times you'll find verse 12 in there. And I think the reason it's kind of obvious, many of you may be already thinking about it, is you have here, Paul uses two words, two words in combination that seem unexpected. Work and salvation. Now, normally you would expect from Paul to use the words work and salvation in opposition to each other. But here they're in support of each other. How can that be? I mean, the very heart of Christian theology, the very heart of our faith is God saves the one who doesn't work. I mean, isn't it Paul Paul, who says we are saved not by works, but by faith. And yet here, he is commanding the Philippians to continue to work out your salvation. What are we to do with this? Well, some have argued that, well, what we have going on here is some sort of sociological reality, dealing with the church at Philippi that we really don't know too much about. So we really can't really speak to it. Others have argued that, well, it is simply a mystery. Simply a mystery that we'll understand in heaven. Others have said, ah, ah, yes, yes, that's true, but go down to verse 13 where it's God doing all the work. And they, they treat that in such a manner as almost to discount and discredit the very key of verse 12. 
This verse has been at the heart of Catholic-Protestant disagreement. In Catholic theology, they will point to that verse and say, See, it works are necessary to keep your salvation. That salvation comes from Christ, but works are necessary to maintain it. There's been a lot of debate on how this verse can possibly be in Paul's letters. But here it is. And what are we to do with it? Well, you remember earlier, I I kind of walked us through the context of what we've been talking about. And I think the context is key here. Had this verse just sort of existed in a vacuum, then yes, there may be some difficulty. This verse does not fall down in a vacuum. The first word of verse 12 is therefore. Now here's a tip. Whenever you see the word therefore, horn should sound, siren should go off, whistle should blow. It's an anchor to the context. When you see the word therefore, it screams at you everything this verse is going to say is anchored to the context of what has been said. So what have we been talking about? What have we been talking about since verse 27? We've been talking about responding to the gospel. Responding in a conduct, a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We've been talking about obedience. We have not been talking about conversion. Paul hasn't mentioned anything in this passage about conversion. It's been a command to walk in obedience. In fact, the very beginning of verse 12, what does Paul remind the Philippians? That they have been obeying. What preceded that about Christ? What does he emphasize about Christ? That he was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Obedience has been the through line of this entire passage. So that should tell us that we should anticipate or, or that this phrase, work out your salvation, is somehow related to obedience. And I think the word that throws us here is salvation. I think that's the word that sort of gives us difficulty. Because we tend to think of salvation as two points. We tend to think of salvation as that moment, that precious, wonderful moment, where a sinner accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior, where that person on his knees prays for the mercy and grace found in Christ. That moment of conversion. That's one moment when we think of salvation. We also tend to think of salvation as that final moment, that moment at Judgment Day, that last great getting up morning when God will judge all of mankind and when he will look at the person who has been saved, who has committed their life to Christ, who has accepted the cross, when he will look at them and he will pardon them. We tend to think of those two points when we think of salvation. Yet salvation, the term salvation, actually refers to the entire redemptive work of God and his people. The entire process, not just this point and that point. 
And this text is working out your salvation. is not about getting saved. It's not about persevering or keeping your salvation. No, it is about living it out. Living out your salvation. What Christ has freed you for is to serve Him. When you are a child of Christ, when you belong to Him, you are free to live out your salvation. You are free to demonstrate that what happened at conversion is valid. You are free to demonstrate that you anticipate what will happen on that great day. You are to work out your salvation. You are to make it alive. You are to show it. I believe this is the context that Paul is talking about. That Christ who is obedient unto death on the cross, who has provided a way for you to be saved, therefore, live it. Therefore, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And there is a frame of mind we are to have with this. Look back with me. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's an odd phrase, really. It has a bit of an ominous feel to it, doesn't it? Fear and trembling. You don't find it in the New Testament too much. You're more likely to find fear and trembling in the Old Testament. But the quirky thing is, where you find it, it's not with the people of God, it's with the enemies of God. It's with the enemies of Israel as they face God in judgment. That they face the awesome, almighty, very helplessly. That they face it with fear and trembling. Now that's odd because why would Paul choose such a phrase here? Why would Paul, when talking about the Philippian church, when exhorting them to continue to obey, to work out salvation, why would he pick a phrase most often associated with the enemies of God? Well, I believe he is reminding us just who we are obeying just who we are serving. That beautiful hymn in verses 5 through 11 of Christ, at the very end, in 9 through 11, we are told that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is God we are obeying. It is God who saves. It is God who judges. Now the enemies of God, the enemies of God recognize His sovereignty and judgment. But those of us who are His children, we should recognize that same great Almighty in our salvation. It is God, God who we obey. Now, I think we have a tendency, I think I have a tendency at times to really focus on the more intimate natures of God, the more intimate aspects, the, the closeness, the comfort, 
the Father. Sometimes to the point that I forget to contemplate that He is God. That He is the Creator. That He is the Almighty, the Great I Am. I should approach Him in my obedience with the awe and the wonder that is due God in His presence. With fear and trembling, I obey. Not, not as a, it's not a cowardice. It's not a lack of self-worth. It's just the proper recognition that I am a created being and He is Creator. Now, this command to work out your salvation, this command to obey with fear and trembling, it's a bit overwhelming. It's a bit daunting. Perhaps you're tempted like me to say, I can't do it. I can't. There's no way I can measure up. There's no way I can obey the great Almighty. I just can't do it. Ah, but verse 12 is itself not in a vacuum. Verse 13. Read with me. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. It is God who works in you. Paul calls the Philippian church to work out their salvation. But the good news is that they are so able to do it. They are so able to will. They are so able to act because God is effecting their obedience. God is empowering them for their obedience. God is already at work in and among them. The good news is that God is on the side of His people, friends. God is on the side of His people. God is working already for our obedience. And when we obey, it is God doing it. It is God who desires for us to obey Him. It is God who changes our wills. The Holy Spirit, the great mystery is the Holy Spirit dwells in us. If we are committed to Christ, if we have been saved, if we have accepted Him as our Lord and Savior, His Spirit transforms your spirit. His desires become your desires. And why? Why? It was for His good pleasure. Why does God want us to obey? Because it pleases Him. It is for His good pleasure. But the wonderful, wonderful reality is that God is not a capricious being. God desires to act on behalf of His people. God sent His Son. God's will is the more excellent thing. If you're sitting there today, and you know 
God has laid upon your heart something you are to do. And man, you've been kicking it. And you've been fighting it. You have, you have searched every aspect of Scripture to try to find a verse that tells you that you're not really feeling what you think you're feeling. You know, you're trying to talk with people to convince you that you'd be crazy to do what God has laid upon your heart to do. Friends, if, if you're wondering, can you do it? If you're wondering, should you do it? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes, do it. Obey, because it is the far more excellent thing. Because God wants you to obey because He wants you to work out your salvation. He wants you to grow in Him. Obey. It is the more wondrous thing. So how do we do it? We've talked about obedience. How do we do it? We pray. We want to know God's will. If you want to know what God wants for your life, if you want to know how to obey, talk to God. Listen to God. If you want to know His will, if you want to know how to obey, read His Word. Read His Word. It has changed nations. It has saved souls. People died to have this Bible in your hands. It is His Word. Read it. And you will know His will. If you want to know the will of God so that you may obey, you have a church of brothers and sisters to have fellowship with. They will affirm and confirm what the Lord wants for your life. It's a great wonder that the Almighty desires for our good. We should not fear to obey Him. The mark of a church conducting itself in the manner worthy of the gospel is that it is an obedient church full of obedient people. It is good to trust Him. It is good to obey. I'm reminded of that old traditional Christian hymn that I think sums it up quite well. Trust and obey for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. God bless.